morning, everyone. I'll add my welcome to Kruger's. Um, my name's Carl, one of the elders of Canada Water Church. It's great to be with you this morning. And for those of you watching online, great to be with you too. Get to the passage here. You've got the passage in your service sheet, so you're going to have the Bible in front of me as well. So, our reading is from... That's not a bit taller than I am. Just a little. Uh, <laughs> great. Um, so our reading is at the very end of, of 1 Peter. So we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, and it's the end of the passage, verses 12 through to 14, and on your service sheets. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, yeah, keep your service sheet there with the passage in front of you, and then and we'll, we'll dive in. So we've actually reached the end now of our journey through 1 Peter. And I think it's fair to say it's been quite a long and winding road through what is quite a short letter, but it's where we are. And you'd be forgiven for maybe not fully remembering the very first sermon that we heard on this book. That's because it was in November of last year. Um, but ever such a lot has happened since then. But this is where we are. But as we do cast our minds back through the book, there's been much encouragement that we can draw from this letter. And particularly if we focus in on one of its key recurring themes, and particularly that theme and how it applies to us as 21st century Christians living in London today. And that theme is that of elect exiles. Elect exiles. It runs through the book. And it actually, just those two words starting out may seem a slight contradiction in terms. We heard that back in November last year. But when we think about those two words being put together, Elect means chosen, selected, somehow special, whereas exile is someone who's far from home, rejected, <coughs> and frankly an outcast. So these two words have been shoved together by Peter in the very opening of his letter. And that is what the letter is all about. It's about that tension as we live. We're chosen by God, we're chosen according to his great mercy, but we're not at home here. We're not at home here on this earth. Our ultimate home is with God in heaven. So while we are here on earth, we are exiles, we are outcasts. And if we, as we're commanded to, refuse to conform to the world around us, but instead strive to live holy lives, as Peter tells his readers to do, well, we'll suffer for it. We will suffer in many and diverse ways. Um, it, you know, in, in this country right now, it's not outright suffering that we face. We're not beaten in the streets and dragged from our homes, which sadly is true in, in other parts of the world. But we suffer in other ways, little microaggressions towards us, the one who doesn't get involved in that joke in the office, the one that doesn't pass on that gossip, the one that doesn't invest everything to make their own comfortable life better. You suffer. It, it, has, a, it has a little bit of drag on you in this world. You suffer. But Peter, he doesn't shy away from this reality at all. Um, his readers were in the same situation. And back in chapter 1, we hear them described as, verse 1, elect exiles. But that they have been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance kept in heaven for you. Not here. The inheritance is kept in heaven. 
That's where the living hope points to. So for these Christians that Paul's, uh, Peter's addressing, they're living in various places. So we hear Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, for them, the persecution of the church has already started. Suffering for being a Christian has started. And what Peter is doing is he's writing to them to encourage them. Having come to faith in Jesus, to now stand firm in their faith in Jesus. That's what the letter is doing. They're elect exiles, they're suffering, and the letter is calling upon them to stand firm in their faith. Now, it was Abraham Lincoln who once said, be sure you put your feet in the right place and then stand firm. And what Peter's letter is seeking to do here is to remind these early church believers of the truths of the gospel they've heard, that have been preached to them, and reassure them that when they place their trust in Jesus, they are surely putting their feet in the right place. And once they're there, they stand firm. So as we get into, the, into, this, into the passage, I'm going to make three points. The first is coming full circle. Uh, the second is the true grace of God. And the third is stand firm in it. So firstly, coming full circle. <clears throat> we look a little bit more closely at our passage. You, you might wonder, why are we honing in on what appears to be Peter merely signing off his letter? Is it just the biblical equivalent of kind regards, Peter? All the best, Peter. Well, there's more to this, these few verses than meets the eye, which is just as well, otherwise it would be a very short sermon. Um, but the first thing to notice in this, these closing verses is how closely it echoes the very beginning of the book. So if you wind all the way back to the very beginning of 1 Peter, um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, I'll read it. You can either go there or I'll read it for us. It starts like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So that's the opening of the letter, and then we've recently just read together the closing of the letter. And there are a number of parallels that it's helpful to, to pay to, to attention to. So the first one, Peter himself. So in chapter 1, it's Peter, an apostle of Christ. So he's the one doing the writing, writing to, to his readers. And chapter 5, I, I being Peter, I, Peter, have written briefly to you. So these two passages, they mirror each other. Now, actually, within, even within that statement, there's actually been quite a lot of ink spilled, considering whether or not Peter himself was actually the one to commit these words to paper, um, or rather, whether he dictated to his good friend Sylvanus, the faithful brother. And the reason for that is some people have said, if you read this in the original Greek, the Greek is excellent. It's excellent Greek. It's really well written. And I'm just not sure that this rugged old fisherman in his second language would have been up to this. Sylvanus, on the other hand, he's a Roman. He's been to the best universities. He's studied everything inside out. He can write like this. So when it says, by Sylvanus, we reckon he wrote it. Others say, no, no, by Sylvanus is more like via Sylvanus. Um, he's, he's a courier. He delivered the letter. He carried it and handed it over. And actually, he does something similar in Acts chapter 15. You can read there, there's a letter sent from the church to, to another group of believers. And Sylvanus is the one who carries it in his little courier bag and delivers it over. Um, so there's, there's different ways to interpret what's actually been done here, but 
These are the thoughts of Peter, I guess is the main point. And many have argued whether it's who's written it down. And if, it, if that's your thing, there's statistical analysis out there that actually looks into the, the level of syntactical interference, which leads us to a conclusion that actually, no, no, it's Peter, because um, there's basically some errors in there sort of that a Hebrew would make. So it looks like a Greek as a second language kind of writing. Um, but that's not, that's not the main point. And my view is um, that Peter, like many modern-day missionaries, would have really just grafted and worked really hard to know the language of the people he was called to serve and called to witness to. So in my book, Peter's just upped his game and bossed, bossed the Greek and written a really good letter. But we won't, we won't dwell there any longer. But that, that's the first parallel. It's Peter and it's Peter at the beginning and at the end. The next parallel is the readers, and to, to, in two ways. So his readers as being chosen. So in chapter 1, to those who are elect, chosen. And then here in chapter 5, we talk, here we hear about she, who, who is at Babylon, she who is likewise chosen. Likewise chosen. Like you readers, she is also chosen. And this she you refer to here, it's not... Um, some particularly special woman um, dwelling, dwelling in, in Babylon, um, it's more likely, based on the, the, the word used, is that it's actually referring to a church congregation. So she is um, the ecclesia, which is actually a feminine word in, in the Greek, so she makes a lot of sense. So it's, it's been interpreted as being a body of believers. So the church, um, which is likewise chosen, the church, which is likewise elect and exiled, they greet you. So... The readers are chosen. You hear that in chapter 1 and you hear it in chapter 5 because they're likewise chosen. They're chosen as well. And then secondly, here's about the readers. The readers being exiles. So chapter 1 is very clear. Elect exiles. Exiles of the dispersion or the, the diaspora, to use the Greek word. And that's a word that we still use now. So the diaspora just refers to a group of people who are not in their home but are somewhere else. So... We have representatives of the South African diaspora living here in London. Um, that's what that word means. People who are not in their original home, but somewhere else. So they're exiles of the dispersion. So they're exiles. They're not in their true home. Chapter 5, what we have, is she who is at Babylon. Now, this one's a little less obvious on the surface, but the word Babylon here, the, the name Babylon, there's, there's consensus among the scholars on this that this is actually a reference to Rome. So Babylon is in ruins. Babylon is not a place at this time. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a co-reference to Rome, where Peter was likely writing from when he wrote this letter. So when he says, she who is at Babylon, likewise chosen, he means, my church here, my congregation here, we greet you. It's great to, it's great, it's great to be writing to you. He's referring to the church where he is. And the reason for that use of the term is that it's a parallel to the dispersion because Babylon once was, as Rome currently is, while Peter is writing, it's the centre of earthly power. It's the, the, the superpower of the day. It was Babylon, well now it's Rome. It's the centre of earthly power and it serves as the capital of the place of exile. It serves as the main hub where, where, where the power comes from of the place of exile or the current place of residence away from the true home. So um, that used to be Babylon for God's people, and for, for Peter now it's Rome. It's not home, it's a place of exile, 
but it is the superpower of the day. So it's almost the, the prime example of being away from home. This is where the power is, but it's not heaven. It's, it's exile. It's far from home. So it's Babylon, it's Rome. But Peter and his Christian community, they're in the same boat. They're likewise exiled. So she who is at Babylon with you, likewise chosen, sends greetings. But the word Babylon says, yeah, we're chosen too, but we're also in exile. We're, we, we know how you feel. We relate to you. You're chosen, but you are exiled. So parallels to the readers. And then find the final parallel there is, is peace. So in chapter one, we hear peace be multiplied to you. And here in chapter five, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So despite the challenges and sufferings which come as a result of following Christ, which we hear about in the interim of his letter, Peter closes by declaring peace. Peace to his readers. And it's a peace that only comes from knowing Jesus. So a number of parallels between the closing of chapter 5 and the opening of chapter 1. But the words to focus on are the words Babylon and chosen. They're being put together to deliberately mirror the words elect exile in chapter 1. And this way of writing, this technique of writing, what it does is it makes a kind of photo frame around the rest of the passage, or, or bookends around the rest of the, the passage. And our passage here happens to be the whole letter of, of 1 Peter. So these bookends, they're written in this way, and then what the purpose is, that they draw your attention to the theme of what's going on, and then everything between the bookends, all the books, they help you explain and support what the bookends mean. What you, what you to take from this. So our bookends here are the theme of being an elect exile. And what, is that, what, we, what do we take that to mean? What do we take that to mean? What does it look like to be an elect exile? To be chosen by God, but to be rejected by the world. That's what's going on here. That's those two bookends. That photo frame and those bookends. That's what this, this short final greeting is, is doing. It's drawing us back to that theme. So... There's more going on here than meets the eye. It brings us full circle back to the overarching <clears throat> theme of the book, the theme of being an elect exile. Now, if we stretch or twist my metaphor a little further, if we turn our bookends on their side for a minute, I, I see that as two halves of a burger bun, the top and the bottom. And then what you need in a burger between two pieces of bun is meat. You need some meat. I mean, I don't know about you, but if someone said, would you like a burger? They presented me with a lovely looking bun, sort of a brioche bun with some seeds on the top. It's been toasted. It's perfect. I open it and there's nothing in there. I'd be bitterly disappointed. So what we need is the meat of this letter. So what is the meat here? What, what is it that Peter is referring to? What is he, what's he fleshing this, this out with? Well, from our passage, it's this. It's this. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. He's, what he's saying is that all that he's written, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So, what is the this? What is the this that he's referring to? So, again, some, some commentators say this refers specifically to the sufferings of Christians that Peter's writing to. Others say it's the way of life that he set out before them, the rules they should follow. But the majority view is that based on how it's constructed, the two words that go with it, the accompanying words exhorting and declaring, encouraging and proclaiming, 
that leads us to, to, to conclude that the this actually means the whole letter. Everything that Peter's written, all the exhortations and declarations, all the encouragements and proclamations he's written throughout the, throughout the book, that's the this. That's his teaching and encouragement. That's this. And what this is, is nothing less than the true grace of God. So as we run the take back over some of Peter's key encouragements, they're all characterised by God's grace. God's unearned and undeserved favour towards sinful people. So we'll do a quick canter through, and I'm not going to try and summarise the whole book, but we'll take a few highlights. Um, going right back to the beginning, chapter 1. So those who are in Christ are elected, chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Not according to any good in themselves. Um, they've been caused to be born again to a living hope, according to his great mercy. So the salvation and eternal inheritance that Peter reminds his readers of here is not earned. It can't be earned. It is a gift of God's grace. The Apostle Paul writes something similar to the believers in Ephesus. So in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So it's a gift of grace. And then in chapter 2, Peter declares that his readers, who were once not a people, are now God's people. And in particular, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, nothing has been done to earn this new standing with God. It's a gift of grace. They're not doing anything. They're receiving it. Like Kruger just explained to us, Isaiah, he just receives the coal. He doesn't do anything to make himself pure. He just receives it. It's a gift of grace. It is received. And later in chapter 2 of the letter, Peter then explains how this grace becomes available. It is through Jesus' death in our place. So in chapter 2 and verse 24 we read, He, Jesus, himself, bore our sins in his body, on the tree, on the cross where he was killed, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So again, it's not what we're doing, it's what Jesus has done. By his wounds you have been healed. And again, chapter 3 and verse 18 we read, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous, that's Jesus, and the unrighteous, that's us. That's why we confess our sin, to remind ourselves of where we're coming from. We confess our sin because we are unrighteous. But Christ, the righteous, died for us, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We don't walk up to God of our own accord. We're brought to God. It is all through grace, the true grace of God. This is God's grace. All these examples littered through Peter's letter that despite turning our back on God, we rebel against him in our sin. But despite all that, we do not earn our way back to God. We can't. We are brought back to God. We are the passive. Jesus is the doer. We are brought back to God. We are healed by the wounds of another. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the grace of God. The true grace of God is what's set before us the meat in this letter. So for any of you that are yet to accept this gift of grace, you, the good news is you can accept it. You can accept it through faith in Jesus. 
Peter reminds us of this in, in chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, you believe in him, in Jesus, and then rejoice with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's through faith, through faith in Christ, you can receive God's grace. And the outcome? The outcome is salvation. Salvation from your sin, salvation from death, salvation unto eternal life. And this is the true grace of God. But Peter's letter, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with, at this point, of putting your trust in Jesus. His exhortations, his encouragements, they go further, they go deeper. They actually then expound upon the outworkings of this grace, of God's grace. So not just up to the point of you putting your trust in Jesus, but then this letter to these believers, what does it look like then to live as a Christian in this life? And again, remember, we're framed, we're bookended, we're burgerbund by this idea of being an elect exile. That's what is happening throughout this letter. Chosen by God, rejected by the world. But what does it look like? What does it look like to live as an elect exile? Well, it looks like rejection. And it looks like rejection from the world. It comes in response to the way we are called to live. We're called to live as holy. We're called to live as set apart, and following God's design. And the time for living in our old ways, the ways of unbelievers, which Peter sums up neatly in chapter 4 as lawless idolatry and a flood of debauchery. That's his short synopsis of, of the human condition. Um, the time for that is now past. Instead, in verse 10 of chapter 4, he tells us to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So you've received grace, now act like it. Be a steward of that grace. Live it out in the way that you live, as holy, as special before God, seeking to please him. And Peter goes into the detail in chapters 2 and 3. He sets out how a gospel-believing Christian should live. He addresses specific groups to make these points clear. So he starts with the behaviour of citizens towards their authorities. That's in chapter 2 and verse 13. Then he moves on to the behaviour of servants towards their masters. Chapter 2, verse 18. And then wives and husbands towards each other. In chapter 3, verse 1. And this pattern for Christian life, it, it gathers steam and it continues into chapter 3 and verse 8. But at this point it's broadened out to address all believers. It says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So if someone's unkind to you, don't try and pay them back. If someone reviles you or curses you, don't pay them back. Bless them. Now, Peter doesn't shy away from the fact that living in this way will be hard. So when the world at large sees how you choose to live, seeking to be, as he commands, holy in all your conduct, as he who called you is holy, Peter tells us, they'll be surprised when you don't join them, and they will malign you, they'll curse you, they'll reject you, they'll cast you aside. But he goes on to tell his readers, and don't be surprised by this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Don't be surprised when you suffer for the name of Christ, rather expect it. And why? 
This is all part of being an elect exile. You're elect, you're chosen, you're precious in God's sight. But here on earth, you're an exile. You're rejected, maligned, and insulted by the world that you live in. So the life of an elect exile is, is hard, it's hard. But the good news is that the true grace of God, it extends to him giving us an example in which to follow a standard bearer who's gone before us and shows us how to live. And that's Jesus himself. Peter draws our attention to this. In chapter 2, verses 21 and 23, he says, For to this, which is to suffer and endure hardship, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. So sandwiched between the two bookend statements that as a Christian we are called to live as elect exiles, herein we find the meat of this book. Peter exhorts and declares the gospel, God's true grace in bringing us to himself in Christ first and in giving us an example in Christ as to how we should live and how we should suffer, how we will suffer and how we can suffer but by following in Christ's example. So having summed up for his readers then that these various encouragements and challenges and then further encouragements in this letter, they represent the true grace of God. The true grace of God. Peter then ends with one final instruction. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. New sentence. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. How are Peter's readers then to stand firm in this grace? To stand firm in their faith? How are we to stand firm? Well, the answer is to fix our eyes on the living hope to which we've been called to and what lies ahead of us. So we can cast our minds back to Peter's early encouragements in chapter 1, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have been called to a living hope, hope of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfailing, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance that has not yet come to us, but it is ours and it's kept secure for us in heaven. No suffering in this life can compare to the glorious and eternal hope that we have in Jesus. And then towards the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 10, Peter again turns the eyes of his readers to the future. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. For the suffering is for a little while, but the glory in Christ is, is eternal. And again, that mirrors what we just heard from Romans chapter 8 in our consecration 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is what is to come. That is where our eyes should be. So as elect exiles, we're not at home here on this earth. In Babylon, in Rome, in London. Our true home is with God in heaven. An inheritance secured for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as Peter says, don't be surprised and don't be troubled when you feel a bit at odds with your earthly surrounding, not quite fitting in. It's not the eternal home that you were made for or called to in Jesus. And the world's very good at inviting you in. The world will say, come in, make yourself at home. That's what it will say. Come in, yeah, no, no. Invest in fully in your career. Get the best job you can. Then you can, then you can rest easy. You can pile up a stack of money. You'll have a great life. Make yourself at home. Or buy a house. Buy one and then do it up. Make it the best house anyone's ever lived in. Make yourself at home. Get comfortable here. Become part of the furniture. It's tempting. It's what the world offers. It's what the world wants you to do. But we're called, no, to not conform, to be holy, conduct ourselves as holy, and don't let our eyes stay here, but let them look on to our inheritance that is in heaven. That is what it means to be an elect exile, to know that this is not our true home. It's not our true home. So we should just take care in how much we make ourselves at home while we're here. And if you're hearing this and you're, you're not Christian, then the offer of this eternal home, where you can truly be at home, well, it's, it's open to you through faith in Jesus. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, we hear... These words of Jesus, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus will come into your heart and make his home in your heart. And then your home is with him. So my hope and prayer for you is that you will hear Jesus' voice calling, calling you back to God, and that you will open the door and open your heart to him. Welcome him in, and that he will welcome you in to the eternal home that is yours. But for the Christian, being sure of this future promise of eternal glory, when we will finally be at home with God, being sure of this, we can stand firm in this life. We can live for Christ while enduring the suffering that comes with it. I think of it this way, it's... Like in a two-legged two football match, you've got two legs. There's the, the, the time when you play away from home, and the second leg is at home. When you're away from home, you're in the other team's stadium. The fans, they're not with you. Every time you try and move forward, they boo, they whistle. When you lose the ball and you fall over, they cheer. They're set against you. The odds are stacked against you. You're an exile in that arena. You're an exile. But you, you, have, you, you battle through, and you hit... And when you come in, the manager says to you, just wait till we get them back to our place. In the home leg, we're going to turn it around. So you battle through, you come away with a draw, or you're just one nil down, or whatever it is. But you battle through the away leg, because you know that in the home leg, it will come good. Our inheritance is in our home, and it's secure. So we might be exiles now, but we turn our minds 
the inheritance in our true home, and that is secure. The Apostle Paul, he helpfully captures this forward and upward outlook in his letter to the Philippian Christians. It's a nice, it summarizes some of the things that, that Peter's been saying. So here's what Paul writes to the Philippians. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. There's, there's the reasoning to stand firm. We forget what's behind. We push on and we look up the upward call of God in Jesus to where our citizenship lies. We're all the diaspora here on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. So stand firm. Fix your eyes on that and stand firm. So in closing then, these final greetings of Peter, short and sweet, well, they bring us full circle full circle back to the overarching theme of his letter being called to God through Christ but being called to live as elect exiles in this life and these bookends they frame the letter for us They're the burger bun around the meat for us exhortations and declarations of gospel truth which are the true grace of God by God's grace, we are called to a living and eternal hope. And we are called to live lives following after the example left to us by Jesus. And finally, in view of this hope, we can stand firm in this grace. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in our faith. Even in the face of suffering, knowing that he has called us will also restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us to live in eternal glory with him. And that is why Peter can close as he does. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this letter of great encouragement to Peter's readers, but also of great encouragement to us. We thank you for the rich gospel truth running through it, that we are chosen by you, Lord. We are, we are elect, we are yours, but we too are exiles, and this life is, is hard. It is not our true home, even when we attempted to make it as such. But thank you, God, that what you have called us to is a true home in heaven. And I pray that we would be acutely aware of this as we, as we move through this life, as we suffer for your name's sake, that we would be strengthened by your grace, strengthened to follow in the example of Christ, and strengthened by the upward call to our citizenship in heaven, to know that is where we will dwell secure with you forever, that all the sufferings of this life pale when compared to that eternal glory glory not earned by ourselves but earned by the death and resurrection of your son so we thank you for your grace we thank you for your son and thank you for your word to us 
In Jesus' name. Amen.